You're listening to Small Talks in City Blocks, a podcast production of Women in Cities International. I'm Hannah McCasland. And I'm Bethy Malsion. We host conversations about gendered experiences of city life and the work being done to promote inclusive and equitable cities and communities for all. This week is International Anti-Street Harassment Week, so we're turning our attention towards women working to stop street harassment and gendered violence. We want to highlight the way women have been actively making public space safer and working to change the culture that enables this violence to happen. We got to sit down with Catherine Travers, the Director of Women in Cities International, and Aisha Vimuri, who works with Blank Noise, an organization based in India that confronts street harassment. Blank Noise was founded by Jasmine Patheja, an artist based out of Bangalore. So we're here today at the Women in Cities International office based in Montreal, Quebec, and we're here with Catherine Travers and Aisha Vimuri talking about street harassment. Would you guys give a little bit of an introduction to yourselves? Uh, my name is Catherine Travers. I'm the director of Women in Cities International here in Montreal. Um, I've been here since 2008, so for a long time, working on issues of gender inclusion in the city and getting more women and girls involved in local politics and things like that. Hi, I'm Aisha. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, so I, I'm from India. I came here, uh, I came to Montreal to study at McGill and I just graduated last year with a master's in communication studies and feminist studies. And um, my thesis focused on blank noise, which is uh, what, one of the reasons why you invited me <laughs> here today. And, um, and right now I'm working as a researcher at McGill on a project on rape culture in universities. Uh, Blank Noise is a feminist artist collective based in Bangalore, but um, sort of spread across India and now increasingly everywhere else in the world as different people move. Um, So basically their work is uh, about bringing women out into public spaces and reclaiming public spaces and also doing interventions against street harassment. Did you yourself ever participate in any of their specific events? I only participated in one, um, which was the a loitering event. <laughs> um, so there was one particular place in Delhi that is uh, extremely unsafe and tends to, there tend to be a lot of reported, um, g- generally eve-teasing is what they call it, um, sexual harassment, you know, men whistling at you, being stared at, sometimes grabbing women. Uh, things like that, and so the idea was to go in there and um, stand and make eye contact uh, very deliberately and using body language sort of assert ourselves into that space and using eye contact specifically sort of challenge the men who um, tended to think that they had some sort of I don't know, um, power over our bodies. <laughs> so, and it was it was remarkable to notice that they seemed confused in that situation, and um, and it, and it was interesting to also have it be such a silent intervention. It wasn't about um, you know confronting people with words or or anything more than just asserting our our presence there, um, and and sort of using our bodies to say we belong. So that was one, and that was a long time ago. 
Um, and then subsequently, I've participated in like online conversations and stuff because Blank Noise has a fair amount of online activism as well, in addition to their public space interventions. So the, that's been my involvement personally. So I'm interested in in both of you as bo- researching street harassment and researching organizations that try to combat street harassment. Um, if you could speak a little bit to this kind of this problem. So because I feel like in a context like Montreal, people don't have a reflex to think that there are spaces that are exclusive of women and girls, for example, right? Except for when you ask women and girls, you know, which ways they go, what areas mm-hmm. they avoid, we definitely see concentrations of those things. And so I think it's worth highlighting that it's not something that's only happening in India. You know, and in India, there's a whole movement to reclaim that, you know, non-utilitarian use of space, right, through the white loader movement in Mumbai, mm-hmm. right, which is, which is really great. And then I think more globally, too, there's also um, kind of a movement happening online that's called Girls at Dabas. And what it is is young women who are going and occupying cafes, um, which are predominantly male-dominated and not seen in a lot of Middle Eastern cultures as, as areas where women can go, right? And so they're going into these spaces and taking photographs of themselves in the cafes and breaking that mold and putting it on social media to show women physically in those space. And I think the visual, kind of like you were saying that Blank Noise does, is actually really powerful for people to kind of break that to break that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to, yeah, bring it back to, to Montreal to say that we definitely experience some of those things too. And so there's a parallel cafe example um, is in Park Extension where we had a project, Where Are the Women and Girls, which is actually a play off the French. It was like a 1970s song with a really crazy YouTube video that's worth looking at. Où sont les femmes et les Anyways, um, and there, there are cafes that are still very much dominated only by men, Greek men, who were the first ones to kind of move into the neighborhood. And so as part of the work that we were doing, which was a lot with the South Asian population of women who are moving there, um, as, as kind of a landing point for coming into to Canada, it's a first stop neighborhood and they identify those areas as areas where they don't feel included because they're male dominated so we did the same kind of thing of going and just ordering a coffee and not doing anything else and it really made people uncomfortable you know and so as much as you say that it's not confrontational it is is. actually you know and it is and it does disrupt it's it's not a it's not a, a kind of face-to-face or verbal confrontation, but it is a confrontation for people, and I think that kind of subtlety is interesting. And then another project that we did, um, again, to kind of have Occupy Public Space, was with a project with girls called My City, My Safety, and literally the girls went out, they brought um, foldable lawn chairs with them, sat down and kind of did some chalk art and stuff, and just occupied different spaces throughout the city, and just for no reason, you know, and this whole idea of loitering and stuff was something that they felt they needed to do here in Montreal too. So really interesting that we have all of these kinds of parallels that we don't necessarily acknowledge or explore too much. Yeah, yeah, I, it was interesting. Thank you for bringing up the the sort of relationship. I mean, the the fact that it's similar in Montreal too, because Jasmine was here recently in Montreal, as you know, and. Um, and we had a little workshop at Studio XX where we were talking about street harassment. And it was interesting because we went around the circle to, to ask how people felt in Montreal and if there were specific places we tended to avoid. And almost every single person began by saying Montreal is one of the cities where we feel the safest 
um, that we've ever been, and then went on to provide examples of all the different ways in which we have not felt safe and the different tactics we use to keep ourselves safe, um, you know, such as walking on a main street in the night, um, avoiding, I don't know, Parc La Fontaine, one, one of those examples, like at like three in the morning, um, you know, but still, like most of us, we're talking about how we do feel safe walking home at three in the morning, but we avoid this place, this place, and this place, and then we've had so many examples of street harassment, regardless of the fact that it's the safest city we've ever mm -hmm. lived, um, which I think says a lot about the sort of universality of this experience. How has your kind of working with Link Noise, or Catherine, you're working with other organizations and other projects, how do you guys think about these things of still recognizing the very real danger that exists, but also wanting to do these things to reclaim space or to just reclaim what it feels like to walk wherever we want, however we want to walk? That's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, I struggle with this, too, because Blank Noise has a lot of these um, interventions where they'll ask someone to walk at a time and in a place where they've normally would avoid um, and I've often thought about well what happens if some if something happens to me when I'm walking there or to someone else right and I don't think until now anything has thankfully but um, I mean yes it's a real danger and I think for them a lot of the work ends up being groups of people doing this together I think that that's the answer for now is to do it as a community and I think um, because so many of us do share this experience, that community is, is surprisingly easy to find sometimes. Once you start having the conversation, you start realizing just how many people feel the same way and how many people want to change it. So we, I guess, for now, that's the, the sort of intermediate <laughs> answer, you know, um, until things get better. But, I mean, yes, we do, we do still need to think about the very real dangers of something happening even as we um, try and change the, that reality. Um, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's a real challenge and I'm not sure that there is a clear answer, right? Um, because the point of our work, and it's the kind of irony of the thing, right, is one is that we go to where it's supposed to be the most dangerous, where we feel the least safe, where we feel the most excluded, where we don't feel we can go alone, right? And knowing those things, it does mean that we put into place certain um, strategies to be able to occupy that space, to work on transforming that space and relations within that place, to be able to eventually go alone, yeah. right? But at the same time, we never want to say, well, the answer is that women should avoid it, only go with a man, with a dog, with five other friends, and be on a phone and have a police officer follow you or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> That's never the solution either. And I think the second irony about a question like this is all of us in this kind of struggle to make cities safer and more inclusive for all women and girls is, is we're, we're working to eliminate our own relevance in this thing, right? And so we're working, for me, I'm working to eliminate my own job is the point, right? <laughs> so that's my end goal, you know, is to, is to not have a need for it. Of course, we're far from there. Yeah. And so in, in the meantime, I, and I really like the term that you use of it's an intermediary thing, yeah. you know, because things like um, women-only metro cars and things like that are also, I believe, are, are, are intermediary things. I think sometimes they're 
necessary in some places to shake it up and to acknowledge and recognize that there's a problem. I never think that segregation mm-hmm. is an end solution. We're not looking for a city for men and a city for women. We want to coexist. Um, and so I, I, I agree. I think it's a really tough question. I'm not sure that we have clear answers. Sometimes the way that we talk about street harassment or sexual assault or just in general how women are treated or the rights that they have in different countries, I think sometimes can be used to justify this weird like North American exceptionalism as if North America doesn't have the same problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can we kind of avoid this kind of discourse and do you guys have any responses or just any sort of thoughts on how the different work that you see other people doing or the work that you do yourselves can try to counter um, what whereas while North Americans can kind of be introspective and see how their cultures and their conservative cultures and rape culture perpetuates this as well instead of just being like oh it's a problem that affects women in other countries um, it's it's hard work. Uh, I think, um, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to, obviously, but... Um, <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's very difficult. I find all the time when I talk about, especially being from Delhi, because in, you know, since 2012, that terrible rape case, um, it was sort of everywhere in the world, um, you know, like Delhi was called the rape capital of the world um, and continues to be to some degree. And I think that on the one hand, it's really good to have attention on the problem of sexual violence in that city because it is it is intense, you know, it is extreme and it is um, oftentimes hidden. So it's important in one in some ways that all this international attention has has force the government to do something in some cases. But on the other hand, it does, as you said, sort of reiterate these these sort of orientalist, um, sort of neocolonialist ideas about um, what India is, what Indian women are, and the fact that they need saving, right? Um, and that's a very long-standing trope that just keeps coming up, especially when you're looking at countries in the global south. Um, so... I think, though, what's interesting about things like Blank Noise or Girls with da- Girls Adabas or Why Loiter, these are all sort of people I see in conversation with one another, um, is that they are a certain kind of cohort of English-speaking, um, sort of Western-educated uh people who are able to have used the same sort of lexicon the same and then are drawing from the same genealogies as people in the West right as feminists at least in the West so um, in terms of like a social recognizability so you we're we're, we're closer to you <laughs> for instance like a woman like me who is from India middle class um, educated in Canada now um, and, and on social media, right, and speaking to the world in a certain kind of way, um, we're closer socially than the women in rural India. So I think that there's a way in which w- these women, people like Jasmine, people like um, Y. Loiter, are able to start 
drawing attention away from or, or pointing out the fallacies in that kind of discourse and start drawing connections between rape culture in India and rape culture in the West while still recognizing the contextual differences. Right? And I think it's hard work, but we need to do that nuanced work if we truly care about having some sort of cross-border feminist solidarity. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I would like to think that we are making change, in fact. You know, and I would like to think that social media and things like this has advanced it you know, to a certain degree. Because if you look at things like one billion rising, or like the women's march, like those things were, were global, you know, yeah. beyond all borders, um, and and I think that this separation of North American culture, European culture, from other other parts of the world is also changing, especially with regards to street harassment. Because if you look at the Stop Street Harassment movement, the Everyday Sexism Project, the Hollow Back, and those all came from Western countries, right, where people generally had an impression that it was safer, it was whatever, you know, I mean, this is where a lot of the naming the problem has come from and a lot of advocacy has come from that's been recognized increasingly by municipal authorities and things like that. And I think globally, we've also come to a few different turning points, right? So we have these sustainable development goals now. Those are for the global north and the global south, mm -hmm. right? The Millennium Development Goals were not. So globally, that's a huge shift, right? Within there, one of the, one of the targets is safe, inclusive, um, and resilient cities for women specifically, right? And other people um, are mentioned, but women specifically are mentioned within that. And the, the indicator for tracking that is experiences of sexual harassment in public spaces, right? Mm -hmm. This is a global indicator that all countries literally in the world have to report on. And so I think that we have made a lot of inroads on terms of kind of making the case as a feminist movement that this is an issue everywhere, mm -hmm. right? I mean, one in three women victims of violence, that's everywhere, right? Rates, rates of crime are going down everywhere, rates of violence are going down everywhere, but violence against women is a constant. And so this is a struggle that we're all facing together, you know, and it looks a little different from one country to the next. It also looks a little different from one person to the next within our countries, you know. And I, I feel like within the last maybe two years or so, we've done a much better job of acknowledging the difference within the movement and acknowledging the multiple forms of oppression that people face and the need for an intersectional approach to the work to understand that, um, a woman who is black walking on the street is facing discriminations because she's black and because she's a woman, and those often intersect as well. And that's different from me as a white woman face in the same streets in the same place, right? And so that acknowledgement of difference is something that we, I think, need, not just across countries, but within our own spaces as well. Mm -hmm. Do you guys think that social media can kind of live up to these hopes of a more intersectional approach? Um, I think that's, I, I agree that social media has already shown us so much that we can do, but at the same time, um, it can replicate uh, offline hierarchies, oppressive systems, things like that. And then also, while it is, while a lot of people and increasingly more around the world are on social media, there are, especially in contexts like India, um, millions and millions of people who are not on social media and are not able to participate in these conversations. So, you know, we do need to sort of take care to to include those perspectives in some way if we really are thinking of being inclusive. 
And then another another thought, you know, when you when you can when you keep seeing images of sort of lower class men doing this kind of harassment, uh, you are participating in a certain kind of, of class bias, and that is very al- already really rampant in India and really entrenched in how public spaces are um, spoken about and how both women and and sort of lower class men are uh, surveilled in public spaces and their access to public spaces becomes increasingly limited based on the idea that women require safety and these men pose danger. So it becomes a very binarized way of thinking about it and I think, you know, we need to we need to just keep that in mind as we're talking about social media and all the amazing potential that it does have. I'm going to pick up on two points. So the first is I agree with you in terms of who has access to ICTs and things like that. Um, especially if there's one phone in the family, it's usually not the woman, right? And yep. not yep. the girl child, you know? Um, and But that gap is starting to close. Oh, yeah. And and the affordability of mobile technology means that people who have never really had access before have access now. So it's actually creating... I mean, kind of if you look at the global trends, yes, there's still exclusion, but it's really diminishing and it's creating access in ways that never existed before. And it's really something I think that we can see continuing, right? So it seems like it seems like even though not everyone has access, it's still a good thing to pursue oh, as yeah. a way of being pretty inclusive in a different kind of way. Um, and the second thing I want to point pick up on is is this question of who are we painting as a harasser, mm-hmm. right? So groups like Hollaback in the U.S., is opposed to anti-street harassment legislation because they see it as a tool that will be used for police response against a certain kind of perpetrator, right? An ethnic minority kind mm-hmm. of perpetrator, in fact, you know, and another tool, you know, in a rather racist system to begin with, um, that's been that could be used, right? And quite frankly, I can see that happening, yeah. right? It's just, it's kind of another thing in the arsenal. It's almost, you know, it's street harassment. It's so ubiquitous almost, you know, that it's, like, it's a catch-all almost, you know, um, which is really sad. Um, and, so, and so that's something that we have to consider too, you know, is what are we doing with these things? And at the end of the day, you know, change takes time, mm-hmm. right? And is legislation what we want? I'm not really convinced. Yeah. The truth is there's no one solution, nope. right? So no. there are multiple things, and there needs to be more of a focus and investment on prevention yeah. and long-term transformation of gender norms and relations. Um, and that takes time, and it's really hard to get an investment for that yeah. because the cycles are so short. Project cycles are super short. Government cycles are really short. And so from a donor perspective, people who are going to invest money in making that happen – they want to see results in a shorter term, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of these, like, situational things, call them, right, anything in the urban environment, those are short-term solutions. You know, it's it's kind of Band-Aids, right? Because you're doing, you are making transformations to the urban environment, which can have a social impact at the end of the day, but you're not really getting at those root causes of violence, right, that we're living through. And so we have to be much more kind of ambitious in what we're doing and really look to be gender transformative in our results. And... 
And that's hard. Yeah. That's the part that's hard. It's hard to articulate, it's hard to imagine, and it's hard to get funding to do it. Yeah. And it's a lot of labor. <laughs> and it takes so much energy. Yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting. You can learn more about Women in Cities International at womenincities.org and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our blog, which will feature more content from the interview that didn't make it into the podcast. Our thanks to Catherine Travers and Aisha Vimuri for joining us. This podcast is produced and hosted by Hannah McCasland and Bethy Monsion. Music is by Cole Zweber. This podcast was recorded in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Montreal is located on Mohawk territory. This has been a Women in Cities International production. Thank you for tuning in to Small Talks and City Blocks. Check back on Friday for our conversation with Cynthia Hammond and Caroline Alexander, the creators of the collaborative art exhibit Safety Strategies, Space, Gender, and the City.